Welcome to Raidercast, the podcast where I, Chris, delve into the world of Tomb Raider's myths and legends. Today, I'm joined by a special guest, a companion in my raidery journey who will be shining some light onto some of Lara Croft's past monstrous encounters. Okay, so Sasha, if you'd like to introduce yourself, and we'll start. Hello, uh, my name is Sasha, and I am an amateur queer folklorist, museum worker, and escape room designer. Also a mermaid hunter. I'll explain what that means at some point, because it sounds pretty weird. That's such a mouthful. There's so much going on, and I love it. So I brought you here today to tell us some stories about various mythological mysteries and monsters. As is the prerequisite of this podcast, we're going to talk through some of them in a Tomb Raider framework, Mm -hmm. and I will be telling you about the Tomb Raider side of things, and then you can tell me more about the mythological, historical, real-world stories. Uh, Because big confession here, I am a massive video game fanatic, so you you just imbibe a lot of video game stuff, even the ones you haven't played as much, just almost through the womb. Um, But... um, (laughs) Through the yeah, I'm, I, that's a weird. One. But I, I have played Tomb Raider, and if I'm honest, getting into escape rooms like um, one of my first experiences solving puzzles in a sort of adventure environment was playing Tomb Raider on my friend's PlayStation. But it was my friend's. I never owned a Tomb Raider game. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a Zelda boy. Yeah. So when you take, yeah, I know we love Zelda. Also, yes, that's another podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Do all the podcasts. Um, but if you want to like tell me the stuff. I'd be really interested to hear how those stories that we'll be talking about have been interpreted in Tomb Raider. I look forward to it. I'm very excited. So we are going to make a start with Tomb Raider 1. We're going to go right back to 1996. And the first mythological beastie that we're going to be talking about today is not really a myth. Okay. It is a statue that can be found in the British Museum. Yeah, yeah. And it makes an appearance in Tomb Raider 1. I'm talking about the Gaia Anderson cat. And a great name. So this is really cool because I've been doing uh, a couple of tours of the British Museum. Uh, so as I said, I'm a museum guy, so I'm a big museum geek. And when I can combine video games and museums, that's really cool. So I was looking up, I knew I wanted to do a Tomb Raider story. Um, So I was doing a bit of research because Tomb Raider is not the game franchise I know the most about. And firstly, I found out that the game developers, the original developers of the first Tomb Raider, actually took a trip to the British Museum and took some photographs. And so some of the inspiration that they have in in the kind of look of the Egyptian style stuff you see is taken directly from the museum. And the Gaius Anderson cat actually appears in the original game, I believe. It does. You can go to the British Museum and you can see the Gaius Anderson cat. It's not huge, but it's like properly like one of their most famous Egyptian artifacts. You can buy a pencil case, you can buy, um, you know, an edible Gaius Anderson cat, earrings, whatever, because it's really cool to look at. Is it about a foot tall, two feet tall? Yeah, I'd say about a foot, foot and a half. Um, it's difficult to scale, but it's not huge. It, when you look at it in the game, it looks a lot bigger. So within the game itself, it appears, I believe, maybe a couple of times in the level in Egypt called the Temple of Kamun. That's right. And I believe possibly in another called the Obelisk of Kamun as well, which is basically joined onto the same place. And the cat in question 
there's a big, big room, there's a big slope with a boulder on it, then there's a little side temple with trapdoors around the floor, and right in the middle of this little temple shrine, there is a cat statue with red eyes. Let's explain some more. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's very much like that, obviously much more polygonal. Yes. Polygonal. Because it's the... Many things did Many things, game. yeah, exactly. It was the 90s, and I mean, like, Lara... Famously, <laughs> it's quite triangular. No offence intended. Um, but yeah, it, it, it does look exactly like this. You can tell they've taken it straight from there. Now, I believe, is it in the DLC that or, or something where she actually acquires the cat? I believe the cat does appear much, much more in the... Uh, the not spin-off, it's like an additional level to Tomb Raider 1. It was mm. before the days of DLC, so it was an extra few levels tacked onto the end called Unfinished Business, and I think think, if I'm not mistaken, one of the levels is called Temple of the Cat. Mm. I might have just pulled that out of my ass. I'm not sure. <laughs> Check it and edit it out later <laughs> if you're wrong. That's what yes. I do. Um, but either way, she ends up with it in later games. So what I love is that she's kind of nicked it, possibly from the British Museum. Uh, so the idea that like it, it appears in like uh, near the swimming pool. Oh, in the like, house. Yes, 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 it's actually there in the house. Um, and the cool thing with the Gaius Anderson cat is that in the, the version that you see in the game, it has these kind of really dramatic red eyes. Um, and when you look at the actual artifact on display in the British Museum, you see that the eyes are they're kind of empty, like there's nothing there. Now, originally, there's, there's evidence that they would have had some kind of glass or jewel in there that possibly was red pigmented. So oh, actually, yeah. the depiction with those really big red eyes is not just like total fantasy it may have actually looked a bit like that uh the gay anderson cat is called the gay anderson cat because it was uh taken by a kind of traditional white uh, british uh, museum collector who loved to accrue loads of stuff and then give it and then put his name on it yeah. so he was one of the people that uh, was really interested in egyptology and that was part of the collection that he gave to the british museum and one of the really cool stories with the Gaia Anderson cat is that it is hollow. Uh, and when they x-rayed it recently, they found that it is only just hanging together. <laughs> so there's like a complex metal structure inside. Um, basically, the head is just about dangling there. Like it's on the inside. It's wow. all, very, yeah, all very carefully put together. Uh, there's also some really interesting notes from Gay Anderson. So when they found the cat, it was covered in a flaky kind of red pigment. And then this was chipped away because it's a bit more aesthetic. So that's kind of sad in a way, if you think about it. Even though it was patchy, the original Gay Anderson cat would have been painted. It would have had these amazing mm. eyes. But to make it look a bit more, you know, pretty for a Victorian audience, they actually took away some of the layers of paint. Um, so it's something you would never do in a museum today. You wouldn't change an artifact so it looked a bit more appealing. Oh, God, no. Yeah. yeah. Classic Tomb Raidering. What was the... So you say it's sort of held together very, very finely. Do you know mm. what it was crafted out of? Is it... It's, it's some sort of metal or is it like plastery? I, I, I believe it's metal, but I'm, I'm, I, okay. I'd have to look that one up, I'm afraid. But the, in terms of material, there's a good story there. Um, so the model of the Gay Anderson cat is of Bast or Bastet. So okay. the, the goddess, cat goddess, one of many cat deities. But yes. she's a, a, an Egyptian protector, guardian deity. One of the cool things I found out in terms of materials is the word alabaster comes from the name Bastet, so Bast. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like Really white marble. Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, alabaster. That word is a Greek origin, but it huh. comes from the Egyptian goddess of Bastet. Oh, that's amazing. And partly because she's associated with canopic jars, okay. and with, so with sealed jars that you would find in tombs, yeah. which would have a cat head on top, Ooh. and these would often be made from alabaster. Huh. So bast, bastet, alabaster. That's amazing. It's cool, isn't it? I love etymology. That's fantastic. Mm. That's, that's really cool to find out. Right. Yeah. And also, like, if you want to go a bit further down, so when I was doing the tour and talking a bit about Tomb Raider, so the whole idea of raiding tombs, um, <laughs> which as a museum worker is something that comes up a fair bit. We... I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, so stuff gets nicked uh, and taken in very mm, bad and dodgy circumstances. Um, but the whole idea of Bastets, there's a great story of a prince of the pharaoh um, basically meeting a priestess of Bastet and she's really beautiful and he basically tries to buy her because he's a prince and he's a bit of an arrogant so-and-so um and then she ends up kind of asking him to meet her again at the temple of bastet and uh, when he arrives he makes uh, well she tricks him into sealing away or signing away all of his possessions uh, all of the possessions of his family, and then finally agreeing to murder his own children. And then just before they kiss, she disappears basically in a puff of smoke with the scream of a cat. And then he's found walking around naked and uh, a bit of an overshare, but he's walking around basically holding uh, an amphora in front of his genitals, completely <laughs> naked in the village square of Memphis, not the American Memphis, the original <laughs> original Egyptian Memphis. There's and no meaning to lyrics of <laughs> walking in Memphis. I know, right. But you can imagine being this like really high-born guy walking around completely naked and then he's found by the pharaoh and it's the whole idea that Bastet had basically taken revenge on him because he'd stolen some manuscripts from her tomb. So, Ooh. you know, Lara and curators at the British Museum, watch out, don't nick stuff from Bastet. Not stuff. a good idea. Don't nick them and keep them in your house. Bad idea. Bad idea. Or your swimming pool. That's fantastic. So that was the Gaia Anderson cat. Mm -hmm. We are now, we are going to stick with Tomb Raider 1. Within the context of the game, we're going to hop back to Greece so we can start talking about centaurs. Ah, so a half horse, half human. Or a half human, half horse. Oh, it's like yes. half glass, it's a glass <laughs> half horse or half human. <laughs> the mythological optimist. So within the context of Tomb Raider, centaurs, they appear first of all in Greece as statues that burst to life. They are guarding a tomb. Mm -hmm. They throw some sort of fireball-y type things, very generic <laughs> enemy video game type things. So they're the bad guys. They are some of the bad guys, and okay. they take a lot of bullets to stop them. They're very strong. They also appear in the Egyptian levels, and... Much later on in the game, spoilers, Lara goes to Atlantis. They appear to be of Atlantean origin. The Atlanteans within the, the mythology of Tomb Raider, very into their genetic engineering. Okay. So, you know, stitching humans and horses together. Maybe it was just for fun, or maybe they did just want these sort of really strong guardian defenders. Yeah. We'll never know, because Lara being Lara... Blew the place up. <laughs> Kills them all. Yeah. A uh, <laughs> bit thoughtless. She could have uh, taken a sample and found Put out it by a swimming pool, along with the Gail Anderson <laughs> cat. <laughs> are they all masculine presenting, or do you get They are. Else? I believe they are all um, masculine in appearance. 
Tell us more about centaurs. Tell us about their origins. So, yeah, I mean, like like a lot of hybrid creatures. So um, you get all kinds of hybrids. So my my hybrid favorite, my favorite hybrid is the mermaid. Um, I'd class myself as a mermaid hunter because whenever I go to a museum, I'm always looking for depictions of mermaids. But you get centaurs, which are half horse, half human. You get um, hippo centaurs, so you get which are not hippos. What? Yeah, oh, no, that was really. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Or hippo with a human torso. Yeah, so they tend to or center campi sometimes are what they're called. So they're like fish, horse, humans. So they yeah they have like the front bit of horses, a fish tail, and a human body. Yes. Um, you get obviously sphinxes, very common in Egyptian kind of mythology, and then you've got your harpies, you've got your fairies, which take insect-like proportions, and we'll probably come back to them in a little bit. We will definitely. Um, yeah. So the, the hybrid creature is really common in loads of cultures. So it's difficult to say like who invented it, but. Probably the most famous centaurs we know of do come from Greece. So the links with Atlantis kind of makes sense. I guess so. Yeah, the Greco-Roman thing. Yeah, they've they've got that connection. Now, in terms of genetic modification, it's a bit funnier if you look at mythology. Um, So there's loads of different origins to centaurs. So one of them is basically a god or the son of a god um being born and his brother is quite like a warrior and quite good looking and he's born a little bit deformed is the way it's described and so he can't find a wife and instead takes to um he sleeps with horses yeah so it's a bit of genetic engineering kind of old school old school way (laughs) exactly way the god intended i'm imagining that's not what the atlanteans were doing i'd hope not well you know i mean is it better i probably better for the horses i've never thought of (laughs) this let's not think too hard (laughs) this is not what any of people want to listen to <laughs> this is not what we want to imagine the uh, triumvirate of Atlanteans doing to horses. No. But it's one theory. Yeah. Granted. So that's that's how the kind of the Greeks, one of the ways that they envisaged um centaurs coming about. Literally a union between man and horse, mare. That it makes sense. It does. I mean half man, half horse. Yeah. yeah. Um the other ones are kind of that there was a, a god who basically um ended up uh, sleeping with a, a nymph and had two children. And one of them was centaur-like, so half man, half horse, and one of them was human-like. And those two actually, so the lapis and the centaurs were in war against each other. So it was kind of brothers, brothers, children versus brothers, children in a constant war. Um, but centaurs are in, in, in Greek mythology, in Roman mythology, they're not necessarily the bad guys they're not necessarily the good guys they're okay. a bit more amorphous some yeah. of them are good some of them are bad they definitely aren't on the side of man so they might take one side or another but they're not amongst mankind they're their That's own unit actually yeah. that appears to be the case across many depictions of it even within across fiction they always seem to take this very proud you, uh, stance of their p- own particularly harry potter Right? Yeah. Like the classic. Yeah. Um, so she was definitely drawing upon a lot of those motifs, making them kind of detached and proud and different. Um, so, yeah, you, you de- although you do get um, the sense that uh, they were quite lascivious. So centaur, male centaurs would, would take women 
or would take Ooh. nymphs, and there's even a sculpture, I believe, in Rome, basically of a centaur with a with a nymph thrown over his back. Oh wow! Um, the other funny thing is there's the depiction of of centaurs. So in Tomb Raider, do they they have a horse head? So in the very first game, they are your well, what I would describe as a typical centaur. You have the horse's body, the humanoid torso, yep. and a humanoid head. Yep. They are skinless. Ooh. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's kind of they're all fleshy and you just see they're basically just bone and muscle. Yeah. 10 or 11 years later that game was remade and the developers kind of redesigned the centaurs a bit to be horse body, human torso and a, a horse's head. Okay. Is that one of the... I've, I've not seen that particular depiction but there are so many different kinds so there are at least three varieties of centaur even in like the Greek Roman tradition so you have the classic which as you described you've got the horse so the four legs of the horse leading up to where the horse's neck would be and then going into the torso of a human with arms which is actually really okay. bizarre because if you think of your neck turning into a torso it's a bit human horse centipede going it on there it is quite scary yeah, and but there are other ones which almost try to be a bit more faithful. So you do get uh, horses just with a human head. So that's another form. And then you get another one. Which it's, is, it's just like a human head sticking out of a horse's neck. Sticking on the horse. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's quite comedic, isn't it? <laughs> it's not quite as like graceful and like, you know, it doesn't quite I they have this sort of, the fear. Yeah, it's like... I don't know if they exude this sort of like bizarre, masculine, yeah, 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 almost weirdly hypersexual imagery. So this is interesting. It's something that I find fascinating with, with hybrid creatures, particularly when they're combined with human. So my theory is the same with, with mermaids and mermen. When you take an animal character and then you mix it with a human... So normally the human part of the, the whether it's a mermaid or a centaur is going to be bare chested or is going to be at least not wearing many clothes. Yep. So and then you they tend to accentuate it. It's almost like the animal part puts the human part into exaggeration. So your eyes are so drawn wow. to that that centaurs seem hyper masculine. Yep. And if you look at the, the female versions, hyper feminine. Yeah. They're very they're quite sexualized, and the same goes with with uh, mermaid it gets a bit weird and zoophilic and we're going back to where <laughs> we were before but there is something odd it's like seeing that bit of human semi-nude but translocated onto an animal almost exaggerates the form of the human because it's it's at odds yeah I know. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Visually, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the the last form of the centaur, I think this is kind of the weirdest one to picture, is so you have the, again, the horse, four legs, and then as it gets to the neck, it goes into a human torso, but to the head, but there's no arms. So it's just like a, a torso with no <laughs> arms and the head. <laughs> and I think the understanding there was like, it's like surely a... six arms are too long, too many, so we'll just lob them off. <laughs> It's like a weird neck with pecs and abs. It's, it's a neck with pecs and abs. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, and then, like, so going around the world, there are there are Egyptian um, mm -hmm. centaurs. They they appear in. That's interesting. Mm. So you, they do appear in. You know, they're not as common as classic sphinxes and things, but you have to remember the Roman Empire, Greek Empire, and Egyptians. 
trading, yeah. sharing a lot of their belief systems. And also with India as well. So you have like the Silk Route, you have a whole set of religions and cultures that are constantly moving between Asia and Europe. Um, and so you get Indian centaurs too. Wow. And some of the depiction of them, they are basically horses with human heads okay. more so. And then some of them have the upper body as well. And like, it's almost as if they had their own traditions that were different. Mm -hmm. And then when they sort of met each other and intermingled, they standardized. Like, oh, this is what a centaur looks yeah. like. Yeah. So whatever was a bit different before gets changed. Very, very brief mermaidy tangent. Apologize because I carry on. There, are there no mermaids in Laura in uh, um, Tomb Raider? I think the closest we have is a kind of sea hag. Oh, Tomb Raider, I'm disappointed. I in know, you. we kind of need some... We need a mermaid. I think so. I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't stand out as odd. Yeah, from my lips to your ears, Tomb Raider creators, we need a mermaid. Very brief, very brief Continue. mermaid segue. Um, so there are mermaids all over the world. Stories about half-human, half-fish creatures exist everywhere. But in West Africa, there was a whole kind of Yoruban religion where you would have different deities. And some of the, um, the Orisha, so these were like a pantheon, like the Greek gods, but for African okay. religions. Some of them were related to the ocean. But they weren't depicted as being mermaids until they were basically caught up in the European diaspora. And after the slave trade and the kind of the influence of European tradition. And now when there are people who still kind of practice and worship Yoruban deities, those Orisha that are devoted to the sea have fishtails wow. when they might not have before. So again, like with centaurs, everyone has a different way of going horse-like people, half horse mixed up. And then the Romans maybe came in going, this is what a centaur looks like. Yeah. And then suddenly they all start to kind of standardize to that norm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But no horse heady, no horse head, human body, horse body. Like centaur sandwiches. <laughs> and we're back that's, there again. I was going to say, that's sort of straying closer to like the Egyptian gods and their sort of depiction of animal head, complete yeah. human bodies. Interesting thing of the, the, the word centaur, the presumption is it's going to mean horse or man horse or something. It doesn't at all. So, so scent, um, that word can mean pierce or to attack, and then tor as in taurus. So the star sign, which is represented by the bull. Mm -hmm. So actually it means pierce bull or fight bull. Um, so the story of some centaur mythology is that they were pitted against bulls or like these giant evil bulls of Greek mythology. A sort of arena fighting or? <sighs> no, not like gladiatorial, just kind of a, a kind of a godly vendetta. And there was a, you know, apparently a big battle between one particular centaur and the bull. So that their, their their name doesn't come from the fact that they're horse-like, but there's also there's a whole group of centaurs uh, that are known for having um, kind of bull horns. That's so again, a cool image. yeah, mixing three different creatures there, so it's becoming quite chimeric. Mm. Um, so chimera being something that mixes more than two creatures together, and so that it's a weird origin. It's normally, when you get a nice, you know, half-half creature. The weird name just means that bit and that bit. Whereas this one's got this ball mythology mixed in there too. See, now I'm starting to think about all of the other possible combination types of animals. Yep. Like across history and mythology have been sort of spliced together to create new creatures. And after you're talking about the ones with bull horns, I'm wondering like a sort of 
bull centaur with like a bull's body and a, a humanoid torso and then bull horns. But then my mind immediately went to half human, half cow. Yeah. And now I'm just thinking of all of the other crazy ones. But you know it's been done, like deviant art. You know oh, it's God. been done. Yeah. So there, there are some really cool imaginings of like, for example, thinking about African centaurs. Would they be zebra? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I've seen, a, a, when I was Googling and just thinking about this conversation we're having now, I was looking at Egyptian centaurs and some contemporary artists have done like elephant bodies or alligator bodies. Giraffe. Or, yeah, giraffe. Yeah. <laughs> really tall. Like a massive body and a tiny body. <laughs> like, like, like Meowth in, um, in Pokemon. <laughs> like really, really tall. That's an in reference that some people will get. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I, I I think I think that's that's pretty cool, and I, I imagine those kind of, those creatures probably do exist in some mythology. I really hope so. If yeah. they don't, I'm going to make it happen. Like a cow centaur. Start my own. Yeah. Start my own mythology of bizarre creatures. Yeah, I definitely. love that idea. That's so cool. That's exciting. Shall we move on to the next yes, cryptid? Please. Yes, please. We are going to be moving on to. Actually, part of the series that I have never experienced myself because it came from some of the add-on levels to Tomb Raider 3 that were, I believe, only available on PC, known as Lost Artifact. I have yet to have the pleasure of playing them. I don't even know if they're available on Steam, actually. I should probably check because I can play it now. What we're going to be delving into is the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, yes. This is quite funny because up until now, I've always seen pictures of something to do with Tomb Raider 3 and the Loch Ness Monster, and it's it's off there, and it's in Loch Ness. It only when I was researching this did I realise that it's actually part of a background texture, <laughs> and it's not actually in the game itself. Uh. Well, the, the texture is, but it's not a big part of the, uh, the level. What I believe Lara does find is a robotic version of the Loch Ness Monster. She crawls inside it, and she sees plans on the wall of a plesiosaur-type monster, which is mm. a very sort of common depiction of the Loch Ness Monster. But there is more to the story. So I'll hand over to you and you can tell us all about Nessie. Well, it's interesting that uh, it's a, like a mechanical um, Loch Ness Monster because there's been so many hoaxes. Um, so I, before a little starter, I feel almost bad talking, talking bad, talking dirt on Nessie um, because she's such a beloved creature. It's almost yeah. like destroying Santa Claus, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So uh, listeners, if you don't want to hear this bit because I'm not a believer, um, just like skip, skip about five minutes. Um, <laughs> what about all the centaur fans? Well, yeah, exactly. No love for you. They've had like a good thousand years more to get over that. I mean, so that's a good start. Actually, Nessie hasn't been around that long. Don't get me wrong. Sea monsters and serpents have existed for a very long time. Um, and there is folklore around creatures living in Loch Ness uh, in Scotland for, you know, some time. But the Nessie myth so that the story that we're used to doesn't really come about until the late 1800s that's relatively recent it then. really is it really surprised me um so there, there may well have been like uh, oral history and oral tradition before then but that's the first kind of written proper factual written account of someone describing seeing a large whale-like beast in loch ness whale-like whale-like it's had so many depictions so we now have 
the the plesiosaur image yes. is very popular. So this is like a uh, an aquatic giant aquatic prehistoric lizard, basically not a lizard. I'm going to get so much hatred oh from science peeps. <laughs> Soz. Um, but but before then, it's been depicted as a serpent. It's been depicted as kind of a hybrid creature. But this original writing describes it as being whale like. Okay, and then. It's only in about 1930, 1935 uh, that this gets written up into a newspaper of a number of reports. And this is where... That's even more recent. Yeah. Well, this is where a lots, lots of people, there are eyewitnesses saying, I saw Nessie, I saw her, and she looked like this. Uh, a number of different ones. There's a tailor. Uh, there's a local parishioner. Uh, and this is where you it's get... Like people who have a lot of sort of kudos in the in the community. Yes, yes. And this is where I think the Nessie myths just stops being just another one of those stories. And this is why there's so much cryptozoology. Uh, there's such a, a mythos about her um, because it becomes about reports like, you know, alien abduction. It's like, mm. but these people, why would they make it up? And why are their stories similar? And all, all of that kind of thing. So Nessie herself, there's a number of theories as to what Nessie might be. One of them that I find quite compelling is that Nessie may have been an elephant. I love this theory. Yeah, it's it's a nice one. So the classic image, if you Google Loch Ness Monster or Nessie, one of the images you will see is a black and white phot- photograph, which shows a sort of hump sticking out of the water and this like long serpentine neck. Uh, it kind of fits with the plesiosaur kind of uh, look. Although we now know that the plesiosaur's neck would have been like straight ahead of Ooh, it. okay. Yeah, so it wouldn't Not. have curved swan-like in that way. So it doesn't seem to fit that. Anyway, um, classic Nessie depiction. But it could just as easily be an elephant bathing with itself kind of submerged, top mm. of its head peeking out the water, and then the trunk coming out as the head with the kind to of... breathe. Ep- yeah. Well, you know, don't want to drown. Oh. Now, the next question is like, what, <laughs> why? Obviously. What, why? <laughs> why? Why is there an elephant in Loch Ness? Um, so the theory goes that uh, there are a number of circuses. The circus is very popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s, travelling all over uh, the UK. And, uh, you know, if you had your circus animals, of which an elephant would be one of them, you would go and bathe. You know, the animals would need to be cleaned. Yeah. And the biggest body of water would be Loch Ness. So if someone saw that and saw an elephant bathing in there, um, it's a bit of a weird one. It could be anything. It could be loads of different things. It could be a swan. Like Effectively, lit badly. Yeah. It could be <laughs> badly, badly lit, lit swan. swan. Yeah, that's a, that's a good name. Or like eels. They're, they're really massive eels that can, can live in Loch Ness. So if one of those breaks God. the water, again, you know, if you're seeing it from a distance, remembering that, you know, even in the early 1900s, we knew so much less mm. about the world than we know today. You see something you can't explain and there's already a folklore about this creature. Right, that's fits. what it is. Yeah. It fits. Yeah. I love the idea of these amazing plesiosaurs who've survived um, and they're yeah, swimming around in the I Ness. wish. I do too. Yeah. I do too. The world is exciting enough without there being fairies behind the shed. Um, it's a big quote, isn't it? I, I like that. It. Yeah. So the idea is, yes, Nessie's gorgeous. Um, and it's a great story. Yeah. But I think the Lara Croft account of it being kind of a mechanised fake one is a bit more believable than the idea that there are cryptids swimming around in Loch Ness. I'm going to get some hate for this, aren't I? You might. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry. Some angry Scottish people. 
let's move on mm -hmm. again to a different game. And this time we are hopping back in Lara's life to when she was, I think, 15 or 16. She goes on a little mischievous adventure on a little island off the coast of Ireland. Okay. She is sent on a mission by a corpse hanging in a gallows tree. Mm -hmm. It's missing its heart. It tells her, go find my heart. Yeah. So she, being apparently a completely unfazed and unterrified teenage girl, <laughs> goes off on this little grand adventure to find a heart. I would wee myself. I don't know what I would do. I would probably <laughs> just cry and make <laughs> But the beasties that we're going to be talking about are some of the little enemies within that level that Lara encounters appear to be very small, demony-like fairy creatures. Mm -hmm. They're about knee height. Yep. They're sort of pale and white, and they sort of waddle along, squeaking, not making much sense. They've got strange sort of maybe bloodsuckery faces. Mm. Personally, I have always related those little beasties to fairies, which mm. is very, I think, unstereotypical for the image that popular culture yeah. tells us what a fairy looks like. But for me, they're sort of sprite-like creatures. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the real-world mythology of fairies. So, um, yeah, fairies, it's interesting you talk about the way that we see them. So we, we see them as kind of uh, very pretty creatures, often female or feminine depicted. Um, the kind of thing that you might uh, dress up uh, for Halloween with pretty glittery wings. That's a very Victorian image. So that's a very recent that image. That is quite recent, okay. Yeah, so so fairies wouldn't have had wings as such. Uh, they could fly, and a lot of depictions of fairies and sprites and uh, fae um, can fly. Um, but this is quite a, a kind of a sanitized, hmm. disnified version yeah. uh, where they become quite pretty and quite friendly and sweet. Um, in a lot of depictions around the world, the little folk... Or, or kind of the, there's so many stories around the world of little people doing horrible things. Um, <laughs> I know there's probably some sizeism in that. Sorry, but it, I was just going straight for it's a lovely day in the village and you are a horrible fairy. You are, oh my god, I would play that so hard. It's so it. good. Yeah, um, but they, they they are kind of naughty and childlike. So it's like I would imagine that what that mythos kind of comes from is the idea of children being childlike and naughty and silly and what if you turn that on its head and make it a little bit more sinister and that's where i would Ooh. argue fairies and fae folk come from so you know you have fairies or the fae and so the origin of the word fae uh, is believed to come from the french um, so for fee so woman uh, but in particular referring to um, the kind of women who would be in a town who uh, practice medicine uh, who ran an apothecary so witches witches yeah, yeah yeah so the mythological origins of the word fairy probably comes from the same kind of idea of of women with special powers but the idea of the fae of magical little folk come a long time before that okay. uh, so you have changelings for example uh so the, the idea there is that um there could be these these entities that are, are supernatural and childlike who will come and take your child after it's born and replace the child with themselves. 
and the child will be taken off to like the fairy kingdom or to another plane of existence and instead you would have a child that will look just like your child but it isn't that's terrifying it is terrifying and now it gets even scarier there have been um even in the kind of late 1800s there are records of um people reporting that their their loved ones, a child, or sometimes even a wife or a spouse has been replaced by a changeling. In some cases, even being killed. Yeah, because something's wrong. It's oh, not right. God. This child is not mine. So there's even some theories that that sometimes people may be suffering from mental illness and their perception of their child or young person within that framework of that folklore would condone them basically being kicked out or killed or got rid of because they're not makes actually them think they're right yeah. in what they're doing. It's quite scary. But yeah, so so the Fae and fairies are, are quite, often quite a sinister. They're, they're pranksters. Um, yeah. So they play tricks, uh, but they take things and they steal things. Um, their mythology is often kind of intertwined. We talk, spoke about witches, but also even with vampires. That's so... Cool. Yeah, so there was a one of the, the ways of kind of warding off fairies was to leave like a thimble or a small container of milk and to prick your finger, drop a blood into that as well. So they have a, a little bit of taste for blood. Uh, I know, a little bit sinister. And also vampires were often blamed uh, for causing TB, tuberculosis. So uh, victims of tuberculosis would be fine with large deposits of blood still in their body, mm-hmm. in the corpse, which is very weird because normally when you die, you know, you go pale and all the blood sort of dissipates, yeah. but but not with TB. And so the belief was that this was a corpse that was coming out and sucking the blood of others, and that's why it still had blood in it. But fairies were also blamed for tuberculosis as well hmm. in some places. Now, the ones that you're describing, they sound quite earthy and subterranean. They do. I believe one of the places that they're found in the levels appear to be around what look like burial mounds. I think they appear in other parts of the level as well, which is, again, it's very underground mm. within maybe a sort of tunnel type areas. I believe the, the level is possibly called the Labyrinth. It's been so long since I played this okay. area. yeah. But yes, very sort of subterranean, earth-based creatures. So the the closest versions I can think, you've obviously got your dwarves, uh, mm-hmm. popularised by Tolkien, but you know existing long before in Scandinavian folklore and trolls. But in particular, I like uh, to- the Tommyknockers. Uh, so Tommyknockers are more of an American tradition. There is a Stephen King novel and a terrible TV series <laughs> uh, done in like I think the late eighties. I was um, never allowed to watch it. Really? Never. It's terrible, but it's good. Oh. You know, like, it's a bit of both. I mean, I got... I remember being freaked out by films from around that era. Uh, I believe one was called Critters. Oh, my God! Oh, Gremlins Ripoff. I don't know, because I've never watched it, because it scared me so You've much as a Gremlins, child. Right? Oh, I love Gremlins. Okay. I love Gremlins. But Critters, I just remember seeing those furry little balls with mouths... And it really scared me yeah. as a kid. And I only recently found out that it was like a horror comedy, that it wasn't supposed to be <laughs> that scary. I was terrified of E.T. when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so so Tommy Knockers, the idea of the, the original folklore is that uh, miners who die in, in the dark in the mines... Oh, uh, like I know. Yeah. Digging miners, not children. Yeah, yeah, that's in. Yeah. I'm making a, a pickaxe motion for those that can't hear that. Yeah. Um, 
so they they would come back as tommy knockers because when you were in the mines i remember that mines even to this day but particularly in the past they had a huge um casualty right so people mm, would yeah. die a lot a very dangerous job with cave-ins and things like that speaking to a welshman i know oh apologies <laughs> um but you, you might hear knocking in the dark when you knew there was no one there uh, and so the idea of these these were tommy knockers these were the spirits of um, miners that would come back as malevolent creatures, little creatures in the dark that would like try to tempt you away or confuse you and would then try to kill you as well. Oh, kind of an earth-based siren yeah a little bit yeah like a like a something between like a pixie and a ghost and like a goblin something between those but yeah that sounds a little bit like what you're describing like a dark entity that's small and malevolent so possibly bloodthirsty yeah yeah so one of the things that's that's interesting so i i studied psychology as my undergrad and obviously we you know all of us have phobias, things that we are frightened of. And there are specific ones like arachnophobia and fear of serpents and snakes and rats. But there are some phobias that are innate. So all people have certain phobias. Really? Yeah. So one of them is microphobia. And that officially means fear of small things. Um, so to explain that, it's a bit more specific than that. If a small thing moves fast, we jump. So it doesn't matter whether you are scared of spiders or not or scared of cockroaches. Before your brain can kick in, if a small thing moves across the floor, everyone will jump. Wow. There is a there's a fear response. We do not like small things that move fast. When we can identify it, oh, it's a mouse or it's a spider or it's a fly, then we may respond by going, I'm okay with that or mm. I'm even more freaked out now, depending on your fears. But there is a natural fear of small things moving when we don't know what they are. Um, that's quite a, an evolved response because yeah. pests and parasites and nasty small things eating your grain or biting you aren't yeah. good. And so across human culture, small things that move fast are scary. And so <laughs> there are stories that tell these kinds of creatures that are out the corner of your eye, the little sprites, the little pixies, the little gremlins that are attacking. It's a, It seems to be wrapped up in that basal wow. human fear. And so I'm thinking one of the kind of interesting stories, which may or may not be true, uh, relates to the Flores Islands. So the uh, uh, basically the idea that the people of the Flores Islands, like every other group of people, have stories of little folk who would come and steal fire, who would occasionally steal children. So again, like the changelings. Um, but then more recently, they in well, the past 20 years or so, they have found these tiny skulls of a hominid species. So a, a relative of ours yeah. called Homo floresiensis, who basically means Flores man. Uh, and these were small hobbit-like. So they were... Oh, yes. You've heard of these. Yeah. Probably. They're called like the hobbit hobbits. Um, the hobbit hobbit hobbits? The hobbit <laughs> They're just called the hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> but these would have been smaller people kind of... Um, Almost uh, when they're drawn, at least, uh, like upright chimpanzees, um, but a little Mm. bit svelter. Uh, And the argument is that these could have been coexisting with man on these islands and stealing our fire because maybe they couldn't make it themselves and maybe stealing our food, even taking maybe infants. And so if you had these small small humans, humanoid-like people who were perceived as stupider and silly 
and who were thieves. And then this became part of the story of their fairy subculture, combined with the, the idea that we don't like small things that yeah. move fast. Um, yeah, and then you've got the origins for a fairy folklore. That's wow. so cool. That's so mm. interesting. It's fun. God. I love that it's sort of not only touched on mythology, but it's also delving into paleontology as mm. well, anthropology even. It's great. That's so exciting. Sasha, this has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. I I'm really enjoyed going it. to end the episode here because we have learned so much today about all different mythologies and all different monsters and creatures, and this has been wonderful. If you're happy to come back for a future episode, I would absolutely love it. Totally. Yes. I would love to. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Cheers. Yes. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. For more info, or if you'd like to be involved, check out our Twitter page at Pod. Bye for now.